You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, at the site of Dachau, the concentration camp there in Germany, southern Germany, there's a museum outside, and there's inside of it, it contains many of the relics from the camp where you guys know that literally tens of thousands of people were put to death during World War II by Hitler and the Nazi regime. But there's a sign there in that museum next to the exit, and it reads this. It says, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. The same idea is in Paul's mind here as he's penning this letter to the Corinthians. He's thinking about the mistakes that the Israelites made in the Old Testament scriptures. And they're cited by the apostle in 1 Corinthians and and a little bit. They're referred to in 2 Corinthians as well. And they serve Paul as a reminder and a warning, just like that sign in Dachau. And so tonight, the Scriptures, the Bible, it's going to serve as a reminder to you and me that Israel is an example for us and that their lives spiritually should speak to us about how we live our Christianity, how, how, what we allow into our hearts, what we allow before our eyes, what we allow into our homes. Now, as we saw last week through what Mark Abbey was sharing, and I, I listened to that online, it was great, Uh, But Mark was sharing that Paul was speaking as a father to the church that he had planted. And that church is now struggling. It's been infiltrated by false teachers. And and as a result of a lot of this false teaching, there's liberalism. There's this idea, you know, these weird ideas that are circulating through the church. And so there's a lot of stuff going on that shouldn't have been going on in this Christian church. And Paul has just finished exhorting the members of the Christian church or the Corinthian church there that they should not receive God's grace in vain. That they shouldn't receive it as if it were nothing. But, But they should allow the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to affect them in a way that changes the way they live. And they should persevere in their faith living for Jesus. He's reminded them in chapter 5 that they were ambassadors of God, called to reach their world where God had placed them, and at the same time, to not participate in the sins of the world. Now, Paul is continuing with this thought as a father, talking to his spiritual children. So that's the tone for tonight's passage. This is not a condemnation, hellfire and damnation sermon from Paul the Apostle. This is Paul pleading as a father. He's opened his heart to his people, his spiritual children, and he's pleading with them as a father that they would think about their lives and that they would come out from the world and be separate, okay? And that command actually shows up right there in verse 14. Check it out with me. First, or 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, we read, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Let's pause right here for a moment. This is the command that the rest of what we're looking at tonight is tied into. This is the prescription. This is God's word for you, God's word for me. It is in the imperative tense, in the Greek, meaning it's a command. 
This is from God's heart to your heart tonight. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now let's unpack that and find out what that means. If this is a command from the Lord, we need to understand it. We need to know what he's saying. Now the word that Paul uses for unequally yoked is is one Greek word. Those two words, unequally yoked in the Greeks, is one word, heterozugeo, which literally means yoke differently. To yoke differently. Now, of course, the concept of yoke is not, you know, what you might be thinking today, the, the egg yoke, or, or like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm yoked, you know. It's not that kind of yoke, okay? We're talking about the concept of farming, where you had that wooden instrument that would, you know, go around the neck of one animal, it would pair him up with the other animal there next to him, and they would be pulling that, that spade through the soil, uh, sometimes wooden, sometimes iron if they had that, and it would create that furrow for uh, the, the, the farming, the process of farming. Now, here, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this word, heterozugeo, is used in the New Testament. It's the only place. But there are two places in the Old Testament where the same concept is referred to, and that's going to help us to understand what Paul means by this word. So let me read these to you, and if you want to uh, turn there, you can. One is in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 19. If you want to flip back in your Bibles to Leviticus there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible, chapter 19 and verse 19. We find in the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament, the same Greek word is used in in this verse. And, And it says this, it says, You shall keep my statutes. God is speaking to the Israelites. He says, You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Now, the other place it's found in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10. So flip over uh, to Deuteronomy. So Leviticus numbers Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10, where we read, I'll give you one second to get there. Three seconds, three, two, one, all right. Deuteronomy 22.10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, the Israelites were the only ones who received these kinds of commands from the Lord, these kinds of laws. And and that was unique to them. There were other cultures that would utilize different animals in in their plowing. It it didn't really seem to matter that much. Um, They were able to do that. Uh, it wasn't comfortable for the animals. It wasn't the best for the animals. But they, there were cultures that did that. But, but here's the idea here. This idea of partnering with, a joining together with, that's what Paul is talking about. And there's these two different senses. One is with breeding, you know, one livestock breed with another kind. And then this other idea of plowing or, or yoking up together, becoming joined together with animals of a different uh, breed. Okay? Now, these verses do seem kind of ridiculous to us in our modern-day culture, right? We're looking at them going, what in the world? Most of us wear clothing that is mixed somehow. You know, I'm so thankful for pants that stretch now, you know? I used to have that problem where you'd squat down and be like, whoa, you know? You know, I'm so glad that doesn't happen anymore. They put a little bit of spandex in the pants. So nice, right? Uh, But these verses 
you know, and, and that's a good thing. Why is that? Because we're not Israelites in the Old Testament culture. We are Christians living in the New Testament church. So let's remember that these laws in the Old Testament, these, especially these in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these laws are about not mixing, breeding, sowing seeds, and materials for clothing. They were specifically given to Israel in that context as a way to remind them they were called to be different from everyone around them. Now, people who don't understand the difference between the old covenant of Mosaic law and the new covenant of grace, there are people that don't understand that those ceremonial laws have been you know, done away with and, and, and Christ fulfilled all the law for us. Now, there are people that, that, that don't get that the moral laws don't change, right? The moral principles of the Old Testament, you can find every single one of them in the New Testament. They're backed up, they're reinforced, those don't go away. But the ceremonial laws have changed. Remember the vision that God gave Peter on the rooftop? All those unclean animals in the sheet? And he's like, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Hey, that's, that's okay now. It's, it's, it's okay to go and eat those, uncle, those what were formerly under ceremonial law, unclean. Now God is declared clean, so you can go ahead and, and go for it now. But there's this difference and that's why it's important to study in the context of the passage. Listen, if we were Israelites living under the Mosaic law, well then yes, we would be trying to observe that particular law. We'd still be wearing pants that ripped down the back when we squatted down too low, okay? We'd still have that problem. But since we are the church where Jesus has torn down the walls of distinction between Jew and Gentile, and we're living under grace and not the law, it's no longer necessary for Christians to observe these laws that were given to distinguish Israel from other nations. Now, let me clarify something, though. This doesn't mean that we are exempt from applying the principles of holiness. The principles of holiness still apply to Christians. We are still called to be separate from the world. The way that we do that, though, is not by wearing, you know, not wearing clothes that are mixed material, but by the way we live our lives, okay? How does this happen? How are we to be separate, then, from the world? Well, Paul is going to give us five rhetorical questions that give us five rhetorical reasons uh, how, why we are separate or how to live separately from the world. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. We'll pick it up where we left off. He says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? This is the first question of five. And this gives us a clue. The word fellowship is koinonia. What fellowship, what, what communion has righteousness with lawlessness. That word righteousness there is speaking about a life or a lifestyle that is in conformity to God, to God's absolute truth, to God's morals, to God's justice and laws. Okay, so righteousness then describes the character of you and me. If we are living a life that is in conformity to God, to who He is, to how He operates then we have no communion, just naturally, we have no communion with lawlessness. Now lawlessness here is speaking of a state of being or behaving in open defiance to the law. So in context, open defiance to God's law. We don't have communion with somebody that is going to live their life in such a way that they openly defy God's moral principles. Okay? 
if someone is going to choose to live a life that is conforming or behaving in open defiance to God, who we love, then, then we shouldn't have this kind of close, intimate communion with this person. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't have a friendship of sorts or a relationship of sorts, but this intimate connection, this fellowship, this oneness, this koinonia, it's impossible. It's just impossible. Secondly, Paul asks the question, in what communion has light with darkness? Light and darkness are opposites. Light is open. It's transparent. It's good. It warms the things around it. Darkness, on the other hand, is hidden. It's dangerous. It's cold. And it is bad. (laughs) What communion do they have together, Paul is asking. That's the point. They don't share anything in common. Okay? Number 15, or verse 15, he asked, what accord has Christ with Belial? In other words, what harmony, that word accord means harmony or agreement. What harmony is there between the character and actions of Jesus Christ and Satan Belial? Belial there is Satan's, is just a title for Satan. There is none. One is the author of love and holiness. The other is the author of lies and wickedness. They cannot share anything in harmony. There is no agreement between the father of lies and the father of love. There's no agreement. Or what part, Paul says, has a believer with an unbeliever? Listen, beyond the sharing of the gospel, Paul's point is there is no portion of spiritual life that is shared between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, Through these questions, there's a picture that's emerging. It's helping us to understand. Paul's wanting us to understand and see what he's getting at. He's not just talking about our everyday dealings with people who aren't followers of Jesus, okay? Paul was no proponent of the Christian island theory, okay? Which, you know, some Christians are into today. They think, hey, we ought to just go off and buy ourselves an island. We'll all move on to that island, and we'll just be there together. As Christians, we won't have any interaction with the world around us. Eh. Not God's will, okay? Definitely not what God wants. So Paul is not talking about everyday dealings with people who aren't followers of Jesus. He isn't just referring to our interactions on a daily basis with unbelievers. Those things are good. Hey, we, we, there is a portion of sharing with unbelievers, and that portion constitutes the grounds for sharing the gospel, okay? That is where we're to have that interaction. Instead, Paul is talking about are partnering and participating with unbelievers in worshiping their pagan deities. He's speaking to the problem of Christ followers that are getting mixed up in and participating in the polytheistic culture, the pagan worldview that is so preeminent in our day today. We live in a culture where polytheism, the worship of many gods, is happening all around us. It's a return to the pagan worldview. Paul caps off the questions with one last question in verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Again, notice there the focus is on worship. It's not merely on interacting with the unbelieving world, but it's on getting caught up in worship with their worldview. You're in agreement, in harmony with the worldview, the system of this world. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were guilty of spiritual adultery when they participated in the rituals and the worship to the pagan gods of the Canaanites. That was how they were enticed and distracted and drawn away. It was through these rituals that eventually their hearts got hooked and they were drawn astray into spiritual adultery. They no longer worshipped their God, the God of the universe, the God that created them, the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they began to worship these false gods. How did that happen? Well, it happened through worship. They became enamored. They became you know, uh, curious. And so they, they attended these rituals or they were enticed into attending these rituals and then they were drawn astray. So that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul is warning the church, even commanding the church today about the same kind of spiritual adultery that would have us as Christians buying in to the philosophies and to the worldview of the ungodly culture that is around us. So we need to heed the word of God tonight. What are some of the deities that are being worshipped in our culture today? What are some of these things that are enticing us as Christians to come and to be partakers and participators and partners with them in their ideologies, in their deities? Well, there's the deity of the sexual revolution in full swing today in our day and age. This idea that homosexuality is okay, that homosexual marriage is actually something that, that, that God recognizes. This idea of transgenderism as well. It's gone way beyond homosexuality. Now we're, we're in the transgenderism phase of the sexual revolution. Where, you know, you're, you are whatever you feel like you are. Gender's not tied to biology anymore. It's tied to your feelings. Whatever you think that you feel like that day is what you are. And so we're, we're tempted or we're being enticed and more likely we're being pressured and pushed by the world today to conform to their deity of the sexual revolution. And, and, and all of that is to lower the moral standards so that more immorality can be sparsed and spread throughout society and break down the family even more because once the family's destroyed, the, cult, the nation is destroyed. And, and so that's what we're, we're being enticed into uh, worship. And there's a lot of pressure today. A lot of pressure. And we just saw recently, I don't know if any of you guys followed in the news, how uh, uh, Vice President Mike Pence's wife just announced that she was going to be working at a, a, a Christian school where she previously worked for 10 years while he was a member of Congress and she was going to be a part-time art teacher at this Christian school. And the media has vilified her because this Christian school holds to, would you believe it, biblical principles and biblical worldview about the issue of homosexuality and transgender. And so for that, they have shamed her and shamed President, or Vice President Mike Pence. And, and, and there's this vilification of anybody that would take a stand for what the Bible teaches us about God's sexual morals and, and, and his principles about that. That's just one example, though. There's also the deity of abortion and abortion on demand. I just recently read in the news that many of the public universities throughout the United States of America are now installing 
these on-demand contraceptives, the, the, day, or the morning after pill being put in vending machines in college campuses throughout the United States. Because as soon as one of them does it, well, they've got an edge on the others and they feel a competition and a pressure to, hey, keep up with the times. And so now there's this ability to buy a pill from a vending machine of all things that can end a human life. This deity of abortion on demand in our culture. In 2016, 320,000 plus babies were murdered in the United States through abortion. Planned Parenthood loves to pretend that they offer women's health care, saying that abortion is only 3% of what they actually provide as services. But what they're not telling you is that 3% is buried in a mountain of data of every single service they provide to a woman when she walks into one of their clinics. And so, yeah, of course it's going to seem like a minuscule part. But trust me, the moment that you or I or anybody else tries to take away the practice of abortion, they will go ballistic. Because that is what they are all about. That is the God that is being worshipped in our day and age. There's also the God of evolutionism. The God of humanism. The God of secularism. These things kind of come rolled into one package often it seems. Where if you get on the wrong side of evolution, you're just a quack. You're just a dummy. You're just a, 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 a lunatic. How could you not believe in natural processes and all of those things? that are being taught in the schools today. There's also the idea of that there, there are no moral absolute truths, or otherwise known as relativism or antinomianism. We're studying a lot of these things in our ethics class here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday afternoons. This idea that love is the only law, that love is in seeking the greatest good for the greatest number of people, that's my religion, man. That's what I'm following. And it's deceptive because it's sucking and enticing a lot of Christians into that belief system. That, yeah, you know what? God is love. He's all about love. So we should be loving people, even if that means that we tolerate sin. Even if that means that we just, you know, accept whatever in the name of love. There are Christians today selling out in the name of love. Intolerance, they're selling out our precious Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and what it means to all believers, selling themselves short of God's command to come out from the world and to be separate. What about entertainment? Dare I even bring this up? Because honestly, this is where we probably fail the most as Christians. This is probably where we have compromised to the greatest degree. This is probably what has caused us to be most identified with the world and their ideologies and their causes today. Is that we open up our minds and our hearts and our homes to entertainment. The God of entertainment, the vehicle through which the doctrines and theology of the world are delivered into our very homes. You see, when we watch a movie or a TV series, hey, we're thinking, I'm just being entertained. I'm just kicking off the shoes and relaxing. This is just my way of unwinding. And, and, and there are ways that you can do that that are perfectly fine. Don't get me wrong. But, but we think, oh, I'm just being entertained. But listen, the reality is, is that we are being educated. 
We are being educated in the doctrine and the philosophies and the system of the world. Through what we watch, our attitudes and our values are being shaped by what we see on the screen. It passes through our eyes into our minds, and that is the battleground. And from there, it goes to our hearts. And once it reaches our hearts, it begins to come out of us. Jesus said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but it is what comes out of his heart. That is where all of these things come from. They're stored in our own hearts. Sin is inside of us. Getting people to laugh about divorce and adultery. Getting people to become desensitized to violence. All of this has devastating consequences for people. I don't care who you are and what argument you want to make. It's more than just entertainment. Now, am I saying, hey, we need to get rid of it all and we need to become legalistic people that you know, don't ever sit down and enjoy a good TV show or a good movie? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we need to present our hearts to the Lord and we need to pray for discernment. And we need to ask ourselves, hey, what's the balance here? Am I spending too much time allowing these things to saturate my heart and shape who I am? More so than I'm allowing God and his word and the worship and the meditation on that word to infiltrate and saturate my heart? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Because listen, if there's an imbalance there, make no mistake, what you put in will come out. What you feed is going to grow strong. You feed your flesh, you saturate yourself in violent video games and entertainment, and then you, you think somehow that you're not being influenced by it all. Well, guess what? The father of lies has got you hook, line, and sinker. The father of lies has got you bought into that deceitfulness of sin, and the deceitfulness of sin always takes us further than we want to go, makes us pay more than we want to pay, and keeps us longer than we want to stay. It's just the truth, guys. What about drugs and alcohol? These things are substances that will seek to control our minds and to open us up to influences that are not of God. They are not of God. Now, I understand that the Bible does not teach that it is a sin to partake of alcohol. But the sin of drunkenness comes from partaking of alcohol. So we need to be real careful. We need to be very careful because alcohol, as well as drugs, they will seek to control your mind. They will seek to open you up to influences and to things that are not of, of the Lord. You know, for the first time, the CDC reported that in 2016, there were more deaths in the United States of America from opioid overdose than there were from car accidents. It's the first time in our history as a nation. The opioid epidemic is spread and it is going crazy right now. Marijuana is quickly being legalized all over the place. And don't get me wrong, again, I believe that there is a godly way to use things like marijuana for medicinal purposes that a doctor is giving you. But that's not human nature, is it? Human nature is to take that and to abuse it. There's a way to abuse that and use it in an ungodly way for which God never intended it to be used. And that's where it's wrong, guys. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's edifying and upbuilding and, and lawful for you and me. 
Yet there are Christians who are just waiting for the day, man, when here in Texas, man, it gets legalized. Because they're just, they're just waiting for that opportunity to legally smoke it out, man, and, and open themselves up to the influences that that's going to do in their minds. And I think it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's not the idea here that God has for us in being separate from the world. It's the mentality that is, how close to the world can I get and still be a Christian? It's the wrong way to be thinking about it. Listen, we have to learn that we are in a spiritual battle every day. This spiritual battle seeks to deceive Christians, to get us to compromise with the world. These deceiving spirits are at work in our world today. And we have to realize this, and we have to resist that temptation from Satan by heeding the word of God, not to be unequally yoked together with the system of the world, not to buy into the way that they think about things, not to be one with their ideologies and their philosophies, but rather to realize that God has called us to be separate, that we're to be biblical thinkers, that we're to have a different worldview because the scriptures shape how we think and talk and see the world around us. And guys, everybody's a work in progress. Everybody's a work in progress. I'm so thankful that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because there's Christians that are learning just like you and me. And as we learn together through the word, we begin to think like Christ. We begin to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. And that's what we need. Paul gives us another reason for why we cannot be one with the world in verse 16. And it is the identity reason because of our identity. Look at verse 16 where we left off. It says, for you are the temple of the living God. I'm back in 2 Corinthians now. Chapter 6, verse 16. You are the temple of the living God, Paul says. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice there that we have a different identity than unbelievers. Our identity is in Christ. We don't belong to the world. We don't belong to Satan Belial. We belong to Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back from sin and death. We're to be inactive to that, and we're to be active to God now. Our bodies are now a temple of worship to the living God. You see, we belong to Jesus, and therefore we cannot live in an ongoing and active participation with someone who's willfully sinning. Now, because we identify with God, Paul gives us another reason to be separate, the exclusivity reason in verse 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, those are quotations, loose quotations, I might add, from the Old Testament. They're from several different passages, a couple in Leviticus, another one in Isaiah. But by reason of the fact that our identity has been completely changed now, and we're now part of God's family, guess what? We have no business associating with the world's system of worship. This, this, these verses, they remind us of the great privilege that we have. The great privilege that we have, of, that we're now part of God's family. 
that we have no business now associating with other families because we've been called out of those families. We're now a part of God's families. We're now a son or a daughter of the Lord God Almighty. And that is a special thing. That is a very, very special thing. And so Paul is pointing that out. He's calling us to remember the privilege that we have to be called sons and daughters. But guess what? That, that is a privilege. It's a privilege. And we need to remember that. And we need to come out from the world and be separate. And then he gives us an application of the command as we wrap this up. And, and this is chapter 7, verse 1, last verse tonight. It says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let me read that one more time. Such a great verse. Such a good verse. Just as we read it, just think about what this is saying and meditate on this for a moment. He says, therefore, hey, since all of that's true, he says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What great verse. What a great reminder and exhortation right there. You know, I love how the Word of God works. You see, the Word of God gives us promises. Promises from a Father who is faithful and powerful and true, and the, those promises are meant for us to stand on. We're to plant our feet firmly on the promises in faith and to say and to realize, hey, this word of God, this promise to me, this becomes the means of grace by which I am now enabled to overcome these temptations and enticements from the world and from my flesh that just want to drag me down, that want to destroy me. It's the word of the promise of God that is his means of grace to us, that he's going to bring us through. He's going to empower us through the Spirit to overcome, to walk in victory. You know, I'm re- as I was studying, I was reading about a story of a, of a, a high, uh, one of the aristocrats in, in, you know, older days there in England who was looking to hire a driver. She was looking to hire herself a driver, and uh, she put an ad in the paper there, and uh, several men applied for the job, several men applied to be her chauffeur, and she went through a process and eliminated all of them but four men. And she brought these four men in, and she had one last question for them, each one at a time, and she said, you see here, this is my garage, this is where the, the, my Rolls Royce or whatever it was is parked. And here's this brick wall that comes out of the garage along the side of the the garage. How close do you think you could get to this wall without actually scratching my car? And so the first man, he said, well, I think I could probably get within a foot of that wall and I could be just fine. I'm I'm a good enough driver to handle that. The second guy said, I could probably get within about six inches of that wall and be just fine. I'm, a, I'm pretty confident in my driving skills. The third guy said, you know, I could make it within three inches of that wall. I'm such a good driver. I could whip it in here and pull it out. Three inches would be no problem. And then the last guy said, well, I would try to stay as far away from that wall as I possibly could because I, I just don't want to put a scratch on your car, man. Guess what? He was the guy that got hired to be the chauffeur. You know, there's a lot of Christians that are living their lives like those first three men in regards to sin. Oh, I think I could get this close to sin and still be holy. 
I think I could, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I could be this close to sin and still make it out without a scrape. And then you've got those really prideful men and women who think, you know what? I am solid. And I can even flirt with sin so dangerously, I can come right up to it. And it's not going to affect me. But that's the wrong mentality, guys. The mentality that Paul wants us to have as Christians, that God, our Heavenly Father, wants us to have, is that knowing what sin does, how destructive it is, and what it can wreck in our lives, that we would be people who say, you know what? <laughs> i got to close the doors on this. i got to pull the plug on that. i got to get rid of this thing. And you know what? I don't care if it makes me look like a weirdo. Because what I'm doing is for the Lord is to keep myself pure and untainted by these things that are corrupting so many today. Notice there, though, how these concepts tie into this uh, uh, Old Testament uh, picture of Israel. Uh, again, I want to read to you guys a couple of verses. You don't have to turn to these ones, but I just want to show you how these tie in to the nation of Israel. Paul just sees them while he's giving us these verses, and he, he actually quotes a little bit there from these verses in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 23. He said this, or God is saying this to his people. He says, You shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. You see, the culture of the world, the philosophy of the world, is something that God hates. He, he abhors it. He's not okay with it. He's not just going, yeah, that's something you should cozy up to and be all right with. I actually hate that. It's an abomination in my sight. And the fact that you're making yourself friends with it says more about you and your relationship with me than you know. Also, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26, God says, And you shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Do you hear the Father's heart? <laughs> he has a Father's heart, a pure Father's heart for you and me. Just like I don't let my kids go home with just anybody. Just like I don't let my kids do just whatever they want. Because as a father, I love them and I care for them and I want to know who they're going to be with. Hey, I guard them, I shelter them, I protect them. That's our heart of our Father for us. God gave the Israelites His law as a means of maintaining a relationship with them. It was all through love. And it was, it was through keeping His laws and statutes that they would find themselves being blessed and having fellowship with the Lord. When they broke those laws, hey, God gave them the sacrificial system that was provided for them as a way of dealing with their sin and restoring them to right fellowship with the Lord. Listen, today, we're no longer under the law. We've been given a covenant of grace now through faith in Christ Jesus. He is our sacrifice. The Bible says once and for all, for sin. And we place our trust in Him. We put our trust and faith in Him. And God puts His righteousness to our spiritual account. He forgives us. He justifies us. He cleanses us. And He gives us a new life in Christ. A new life that's available every day and all throughout every moment of that day. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of the family of God. But listen, the journey doesn't end there, church. There's always more territory to conquer for the Lord, isn't there? <laughs> just when we think we're getting comfortable, just when we're thinking we got Christianity figured out, 
hey, God has a new challenge for us. God has a new area of our flesh that he wants us to grow in and to be victorious over. Notice there in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 1, there is something mentioned there that you and I must do. Notice what it says there. It says that we are to cleanse ourselves. It says, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness, all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What is he talking about here? Well, it's the same concept that Paul talks about in his letter to the Philippians. When he says to them in Philippians 2, verse 13, he says, um, he, he says now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's this idea that you have things to work out. In fear and trembling, you're to work out your Christian walk, figure, out, figure it out. And then he says in verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will, that's your attitude, and to act, that's your ability, and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose in our lives. So there's these two elements at work where it's, it's you and me, we're working it out with fear and trembling. We're to, we're to do our best. And, and how do we do that? Well, that's surrender. We surrender to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's how we are going to cleanse us. I can't cleanse myself from sin. That's the blood of Jesus. But by surrendering to the Spirit of God, He cleanses us. And so this is speaking directly of our relationship to the Holy Spirit. We have to surrender our hearts and lives to the Holy Spirit. And, and then we have to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. This speaks of us actually getting involved in and doing something. So Christianity, guys, is not just you and me sitting back and going, all right, God, take care of this problem for me. Okay, Lord, I'm still waiting. God, why am I still sinning? Why, why am I still having struggles in this area of my life? Well, he's going, hey, man, cleanse your life. <laughs> Purge. Get rid of. Cut off. Do something about it. Jesus told his disciples, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Quit playing around with the sources of sin and get, get radical about them. So that's what we're to do. We surrender to the Holy Spirit, and when He is grieved, man, we cut that off. We shut it off. We turn away. We do something else. We allow the Spirit to lead us in this world. He gives us discernment. He gives us the discernment that we need. I'm going to close with this tonight. The great missionary David Brainerd, who spent... His short life, you know, he died at the age of 30, but he was a missionary to the American Indians in the New England area there. And he wrote in his journal these words. He said this. He said, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. He's talking about his ministry to the American Indians. That was what he did. He spoke about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his focus. And he says, when, when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. In other words, David Brainerd didn't have to babysit all of those people that were Christians in his community there and that, that were a part of his ministry. Why didn't he have to babysit them? Because he says, I find that they begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in the small matters 
when they possess and understand the doctrine of Christ and Him crucified. You see, when we understand what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, it makes sin detestable to us. It makes the ways of this world, the systems of this world, the philosophy of this world detestable. And all we care about is Him. All we care about is His love and what He's done for us. And as we focus on that, what, what Brainerd is telling us is that when we focus on Christ and Him crucified, when we realize who He is and what He's done for us, it tends to have a purifying effect on our lives, not only in salvation, but in holiness as well, in the way that we live. So church, I pray that tonight you see that, that as you begin to focus on Jesus Christ and what He has done for you, that, that would free you up from this, this, this idea of dabbling with sin and, and getting as close to it as we can. And, and we would just go, wow, Lord, I don't want anything to do with that. In fact, I want to be inactive to sin and I want to present myself to you every day. Say, Jesus, how do you want to use my life? Well, how, how can I worship you today? That's the mindset of someone who's been touched by God's grace. Let's pray.